Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Bator of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) We want to thank you so much for hanging in with us as it's been a absolutely insane past couple of weeks. I mean, you guys are probably all going through it too. It's a freaking pandemic. We're just entering the holiday season but we got some vaccines our the first americans were vaccinated this past monday with yesterday when we're recording this it's really amazing we really want to thank the first responders and the healthcare workers and all the people who've been putting their lives on the line during this pandemic to help other people that's really the spirit of star trek it's really amazing what you've been doing and we thank you for holding out during these insane and awful nine months <laughs> Yeah, seriously, you guys are the the real Starfleet officers here, going above and beyond the call of duty. We also are very glad that we have all of you lovely listeners out there, and we have been looking forward to, or at least I have, because I love these characters we're about to do to this podcast, this particular one. I mean, of course, I'm very excited for our part two. But in this podcast episode, we are going to be covering the families of the O'Briens, the sons of Moog. Bashir, the Daxes, and the Ciscos. So this is going to be a crazy ride, and we're so excited to take you on this journey with us as we talk about the different family units. To quote Jim Kirk in an alternate universe, buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was going to be something really like poetic and lovely about family, but nope, (laughs) just Chris Pine. (laughs) It's just buckle up because, oh boy, oh boy, a lot to cover, and so many amazing characters to talk about absolutely and i am very glad actually that we have such a smooth transition from the next generation we have two characters that are transitioning over with us we're talking about of course miles o'brien and keiko o'brien and little molly as well as Worf and his associated Moog family. <laughs> Worf and his posse, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And his ever-growing plethora of brothers <laughs> that we find along the way. Rihanna, I want to start with a bold question. All right. In one of the episodes of Lower Decks, the last scene features a flash forward to the future and says, we want to talk about the most important person in all of history, Miles O'Brien. <laughs> All right, let's talk about it. <laughs> Obviously, that's a joke and that's a great lore. that's a great episode. You should go watch it. But let's talk about Miles O'Brien. Why is or isn't he the best <laughs> character in Star Trek history? Hmm. Well, <laughs> the question mark you put on best really sums it up. Um because <laughs> Uh, I have a lot of qualms with Chief O'Brien. I think that he is a very talented Starfleet officer, and I think that he is learning how to be a talented father and husband. And I think that everyone goes through trials when they're starting to be a parent, but I think particularly Miles goes through quite a lot here, as we are about to talk about. Yeah, so when we saw him in Next Generation... And where we left off in our last episode, 
him and Keiko are married, and they have a little baby girl, mm-hmm. and they were transferred to the station, and Keiko is a botanist, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so she is working on Bajor for a lot of the show, and there's several times where they're separated, where he's working on the station, and she's down on the planet for long periods of time, and she has Molly... And it's a very interesting situation, and I think it showcases how tough it is for both parents to be professionals and the kind of things you have to go through and things you have to agree upon when you're trying to make it work. (laughs) Yeah, I think that this dynamic is fascinating because it reminds me of actually of parents who maybe one parent works the night shift and the other works the day shift. And so they actually seldom get to see each other because either the one person's always asleep when the other person comes home. And I think that that dynamic can be tough because you so seldom see your wife and your daughter in this case. And I think that it would put a bit of a strain on the moments when you are together for them to either be supercharged where you feel like you have to be a really great partner and it's because you only get these small amount of times together in person and of course like we are dealing with this right now in this own pandemic way where some people are separated from their partners by distance or what have you but i think that yes technology is great they have you know they can do their equivalent of zoom calls (laughs) Um, but it does create a different kind of dynamic and i think we do see the strain of that when they are physically together is I feel like they're just not in sync together. Yeah, I think they go in and out of sync as over time, as we all do in various relationships. All of my memories from O'Brien and the Next Generation are just of him fighting with Keiko. (laughs) And in Deep Space Nine, we see that a lot too. But I do think that he becomes a better character and he's able to relate with Keiko more and be more open with her as the show progresses and so it was really fun to watch all of these family episodes with O'Brien because we see him start off as a young father he's reading bedtime stories to little Molly like Rumpelstiltskin and they're actually then Rumpelstiltskin appears on the station and that's the (laughs) oof that was a mind blower yeah that was a rough one to go back and watch but i did love how sweet he was and he was doing all the voices for the bedtime story o'brien is a classic typical family man it's nice to see him spending that one-on-one time with molly and you can see that they are really bonded and they have a very close relationship even though maybe he's not home all the time because he's always doing repairs on the station (laughs) Right. Yeah. He's got a very demanding job. I completely agree. I saw a different side of him where I felt like when it's required of him, he can step into that father role pretty easily. And I think where it's tough is when he has any sort of disagreement with Keiko or they have any sort of conflict of interest. This arises when Keiko is injured in the shuttle accident and kira is the only woman aboard so she has to take keiko's baby of course this was a plot device so that nana visitor could be pregnant and still be on the show which i think worked out fairly well considering it also added a really interesting dynamic between kira keiko and miles i think this is where we see a bit of the strain on their relationship is when a third is involved when kira is involved and they're having her 
stay in their quarters with them. Like it's very tenacious because even O'Brien is like telling Kira how to pretty much like be pregnant. And he says like, this is my baby, you know, instead of our baby. And so I think he's getting a lot of tunnel vision about this because of course he's worried about the baby. But I don't know, I was just surprised how level-headed Keiko was and how frantic Miles was. And I think a part of it was he says later on when Kira's about to have their baby, he says, I missed my first child's birth. I don't want to miss the second. And so I think he felt really out of control during Molly's birth because obviously in the Next Generation episode Disaster, he wasn't there. He was stuck on the bridge while Worf is helping Keiko give birth. It's, as the title says, a disaster. (laughs) And so... (laughs) I think that that probably contributes to a lot of his self-doubt and insecurities about fatherhood and about being there for his child. And then he overcompensates for that fact and tries to sort of control Kira's movements and make sure the baby's okay. I think you're totally right about that. Keiko is a fascinating character and I feel like a very underrated character because Mm -hmm. she is not afraid to say how she feels and she will always push back against something that she believes is wrong or if she's not being treated well. Because often O'Brien, I think, does take her for granted. I often relate to Keiko in these scenes where they're having arguments because Miles is doing something dumb and Keiko's trying to correct it and steer him towards the right direction into being a more balanced human. And I just, I really want to just shout out and say, you know, for all the Keikos out there, like, I see you, I appreciate you, and you're doing your best. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I was actually kind of shocked because I talked to some of my Star Trek friends, and a lot of them really don't like Keiko as a character, and I don't really see why. Like, I've heard a lot from people saying that Keiko is very annoying or whiny or whatever, and I never thought that. I always really deeply respected her. I mean, she is a teacher in The Next Generation. She does a lot of that, which, like, we come from, like, a family of teachers, and so I have nothing but respect for teacher characters and figures in television and stuff because it's important to portray those different kinds of roles, but yeah, I completely agree. I think that, honestly, Keiko puts up with a lot, and I cannot imagine being married to Miles O'Brien, but they make it work, I think, partially because of the distance. I think that sometimes helps them to realize what's important, and as the war progresses, that also helps them to realize. Later on, we see that Miles has to send Keiko and Molly and Kiroshi away. Like, it's really got to be devastating and very scary during times of war to have a family, but... I think that it helps them to hearken back to what's important in their lives. I totally agree. I think that the later seasons of Deep Space Nine is when I really like the O'Briens for the first time (laughs) after knowing them for like nine seasons or much longer over the span of two series. I think I like them so much because they both begin to realize that the petty arguments are not worth having and that as we see happens to Molly in I think the episode you're referencing, Time's Orphan, they lose Molly briefly where she's sent back into time Mm -hmm. and the planet is uninhabited and so molly is stranded there for i think like 10 years of her life like her formative years ages 8 to 18 and there's no one she's totally alone and seeing o'brien and keiko go through the transition of getting her back and trying to integrate her back into society is a very very heartbreaking episode and 
I really thought that they shined as a parent team in this episode because they're taking shifts with Molly. They try to be together. Both of them take about two weeks off just to be with Molly and to try to remind her how to speak English and how to communicate with people. And she really has basically the ability of an eight-year-old. Like the same abilities when she vanished is what she still has now that she's 18, except that she's much stronger and much more dangerous. But also it's just, it's very hard to imagine that situation. That's not one that any of us can relate to, but you can imagine that it would be one of the most difficult things to go through in your life. And I just, I really appreciate how both of them can set aside everything else going wrong in the universe. They're not ignoring the war. They're ignoring everything, including their little baby, because they know that Molly needs them at that moment. And I just, I really appreciate seeing them work together in that episode, despite how emotional the situation must have been. Yeah, Ashlyn, thank you for saying that. I completely agree. They did such a great parent tag team in this episode. I think that it's equally devastating because Miles had just been telling his family when they were on the picnic before Molly fell into the vortex that if the war got bad again on Deep Space Nine, he would transfer out and go and be with them. And I think that's a huge character arc for him because I think even three years previous, obviously we see that he previously decides not to go with his family and decides to stay on the station and stay active in Starfleet. And so I think he is really understanding his priorities even before they lose Molly and before they go through this. And so I think it shows how much stronger they're becoming as a parental unit. There's some amazing quotes in this. And when people are saying that she's dangerous and they're trying to take her to a Starfleet psychiatric institution, Miles is adamant about, I have a plan, but I don't want to get you involved, Keiko, because it could jeopardize you. And Miles says, there's going to be consequences. And Keiko says, so we'll face them together. She's my daughter too. And I love that moment because Miles doesn't coddle her and have her back down. And Keiko also knows that they're both ready to risk their entire careers for Molly because she's their daughter and she's the most important thing to them besides, of course, Hiroshi, like both of them together. So Mm -hmm. important. I think it's such a beautiful episode because it does shift everyone's priorities and it makes it even harder because they're making this decision not to send her to an institution and instead sending her back through the portal because they know that she has spent, like you said, these formative years on her own in isolation on this planet, but it's the outdoors, it's the grass, it's the sunshine that she loves and they know that in an institution she won't get that. She'll be basically locked up. I mean, I don't know what Starfleet institutions are like, you know, in this century but it still seems like it would be a pretty bad situation because she would also be separated from her parents and so they were making a massive sacrifice on molly's behalf knowing that they will never see their daughter again and knowing that this is best for the molly that they had who is 10 years into the future and so i think it shows the lengths that parents will go to for their kids and i also really liked that in this scene when they're trying to get away odo helps them leave on the shuttle it shows that even though he's a stickler for rules he's still like these are my family members and i will protect them and i think it's a beautiful episode and one i kind of brushed aside when i was younger because i didn't understand the true implications but when large molly 18 year old molly sees 
eight-year-old Molly through the vortex and she knows that this is myself in the past and that like she's sacrificing her own existence to give herself her childhood back and her family back and I don't know I just think that it is such a beautiful episode to show how connected we are to family and how we can reconnect through moments of hardship and moments of trauma. I, wow, yes, yes to all of that. Okay, what's the deal with people wanting to take away children from their parents? This also happened in The Offspring in The Next Generation where the admirals were trying to take away Lull and you know these people again are trying to take Molly away from them because they don't think that they can handle it. I just don't think that they should be interfering in ways like this. We're gonna see in the next episode we'll discuss even the Federation wants to take away a baby changeling that comes on board DS9 and wants to take it away from Odo and mm -hmm. I just I don't like that Starfleet's first reaction to something they don't understand is we want to take it away and hide it and study it but I think they just want control over that thing and I think because Molly is so so out of control in this episode they want to just shut it down and to be fair they have several attempts to reintegrate her slowly back into society and they take her to the holodeck where she runs around on the planet that she knows and loves but once her time is up and the holosuite reservation is over she cannot handle being in the bar around all the people and quarks and she stabs somebody in the bar with a glass and she does go wild and as anyone would if they had been in isolation for 10 years so yes she's out of control but the answer is definitely not to take her away or send her to starfleet and so i think keiko and miles make one of the bravest decisions i've ever seen anyone had to make you choose willingly to send your daughter back in time so she'll be happy and so no one can touch her and it's a miracle that baby Molly comes out at the end. As Rihanna just mentioned, adult Molly chooses to send back the little girl. And I think she might know that she will not exist anymore because of the way that time works and that there can't really be two Mollies. And I think it shows that Keiko and Miles's attempts to rehumanize her worked and that she loves her parents and she understands that the best thing for everyone in the situation is to send the little me back into the present day and so I I just really like call out again for Molly <laughs> because she's really showing some emotional intelligence that could only have been given to her through the O'Briens mm, absolutely and oddly this isn't even, I know that we're not on the Cisco's yet and that we'll talk about this later, but this isn't even the first time that then a parent is keeping the memory of a child who made a decision to erase their past life. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, yeah. If we're thinking about the visitor, but... I just think that that is another element that is also very heroic because they know that, of course, they didn't choose for little Molly to come back. They didn't know she was going to come back. But when she does, they are still left with the memory of a daughter that never existed 
you know, or that only existed for this brief period and whom they chose to love regardless. It's Keiko, I think, who says, just because we missed the last 10 years of her life doesn't give us the right to take those 10 years away from her, which is, of course, like drenched in ethics and all these different questions. But I think that they are knowingly keeping those memories of her and little eight-year-old Molly asks, like, can I see that girl again? She was so nice that she saved me. And it's gotta be just heartbreaking because a part of her will never come back and will never be that way and that sweet child who learned how to play ball with them again and color and all that so I think it's just a beautifully done episode so I want to jump back a little bit in their timeline and talk about when Kira takes over Keiko's pregnancy which we briefly touched upon earlier Rihanna I know that you don't want to have kids I'm wondering if you did want kids and someone else was having them would you have them move into your house? How would you handle that situation? Because that's that's what O'Brien does. He and Keiko, they ask Kira to move in with them and they basically want to control every aspect of her pregnancy. But also they want to be around the baby. Like Keiko says, she wants to be able to feel it kick and she doesn't want to feel like she has to schedule time to be with her baby, which to me is a very tricky situation. So I'm wondering if you were in Keiko's shoes, what would you do? Well, I think this is also a question of how parents who end up having surrogates, not having to be that physically close with your child, I think it would be immensely difficult, especially because Keiko has already been through pregnancy with Molly and had those connections of feeling the first kick, seeing the first ultrasound, getting to learn the gender, all of those things that are expected of a pregnancy. And she wasn't that far along when Kiryoshi was transferred to Kira. And so I think that it's got to be really difficult. I think that it is frustrating to me that I think they put Kira in a position where she couldn't say no to moving in with them because she would then be denying them that experience with their child. But if I were carrying some co-worker's child i know that they're sort of friends but like i mean i know they get closer because of this but let's be honest they're mostly co-workers yeah and i think that i would feel very trapped in that situation of this obligation of course you're taking care of this child now that you didn't expect and you're having to also deal with the parents and their different wants and desires from you i definitely think more about kira in this situation than i do about the o'briens but that's because of my own perspectives on kids. I think that though it would be really hard not to be around the child, even just being around in the same room as Kira, and I'm sure that Keiko just longs for that connection. And I feel like it would make her feel a little more distant to her own child, which is such a uniquely difficult experience. But it is an experience that a lot of women go through if they're adopting or unable to have a child. They do end up having surrogates or, you know, their child comes into their life maybe when it's one or two or a little bit older. So it's definitely doable. It's so much harder when you're not expecting it and when it's ripped from you like that. So I don't know, it's a really tough situation. How would you feel about this? It's tricky. I am also thinking about LGBTQ couples who can't have children on their own. And so often they're on, you know, waiting lists for babies. And sometimes you might know the mother who's having the baby. Sometimes you might not. 
And so I think that would also be a similar struggle because you want to make sure that the mom is having all the prenatal vitamins and eating correctly and exercising, Mm -hmm. but also that's not your body and it's not under your control. And so I think even though it's very, very tragic that Keiko cannot continue to carry the baby to term, I think that she also has to understand that she's giving up some of those rights. Keiko's giving up the right to be in control of the situation. And so I think she has to make some allowances for Kira to have her own space and to be able to say, no, I'm not coming over for dinner tonight. And Keiko also has to trust her that Dr. Bashir is taking care of her and that everything is going well and it's all going to be okay. But I think because of how traumatic the situation was, honestly, because Keiko was injured in the shuttle that they were in, I think the shuttle was attacked and that's why, and Keiko was injured and they had to transfer the baby on board. So... I mean, it's a, that's a crazy situation. Kira was not prepared for that. Nobody was prepared for that. Yeah. And so what Kira did is an incredible thing. And so I think as Keiko, even though you want to do everything for her, do her laundry, I'm imagining more of Keiko's perspective where <laughs> you can never owe someone that much. Mm-mm. I don't think. What How? do you do? Yeah. What do you what do you do for someone who took over carrying your baby do you bake them cookies like every day for like six years you know (laughs) is that enough (laughs) like do you pay their rent i I, like i don't know it's a very difficult situation i think for keiko too because i know if i was in that position i would feel so indebted to her like almost guilty that i'm giving you this beautiful amazing child to carry. And I wouldn't know how to repay Kira. And so I think the only thing she can think to do is move in with us and we'll take care of you. But there has to be a balance. I don't know what I would do. I think I would let Kira guide the situation since she's the one who actually has the baby. But I also understand their need to want to connect with her even more and spend all of their time with Kira. I obviously, an unfortunate thing that comes out of this close time together is Miles and Kira start to feel attraction to each other, which is really tough. (laughs) And it makes it really, really tough part of the episode to watch because how inappropriate is it that they're flirting together even though she's carrying his baby, but she's not the mother. It's a crazy situation. One of my favorite moments of that, because O'Brien talks to Dr. Bashir about the situation and Bashir is kind of weirded out by it. And then Kira goes to talk to Odo about it. And Odo asks Kira point blank, which part of the family are you? Are you the uncle? Are you the aunt? Are you the mother or father? No, you're just a friend who's carrying their baby. I appreciate Odo for just candidly calling it out and saying, yes, you're doing a great thing for them, but that does not make it okay for you to start falling for O'Brien or to be the mother of his child in that sense. Sometimes we need to hear the hard truths from our friends in in these really tough situations. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm thinking about Odo. I have a lot of call outs this episode. I'm calling out <laughs> Odo and Keiko and Molly. I just, nice job, guys. <laughs> Good work, fam. <laughs> yeah, oof. It's a, it's a tough one. 
I also wanted to talk a little bit about how cultural differences come into play during the actual birth of Kiryoshi and how they're waiting for Shikar to come and like she's supposed to be in this very calm state because she wants to have the baby the Bajoran way and I think that Miles seems a bit irritated by this and I'm just you know it's another question of how much say should he get and I'm more in the camp of well you were never going to be carrying this baby Keiko was and now Kira is and so you should respect her decision to have the baby the way that she wants to she's a Bajoran she's learned about Bajoran customs she should be able to have the baby the Bajoran way. I just think that it's a fascinating ethical question of who should dictate that. I still think it's Kira, and I still think that ultimately the one carrying the baby should be able to decide how they're going to have the baby, and others shouldn't decide for them because they're not pushing a baby out of their uterus, (laughs) and I think that out of their vagina, like, they should be able to choose, you know? So anyway, I just find that episode very fascinating, and also I'm really glad that Kira and Keiko are united on that front of you men get out of here if you're gonna keep interrupting and like breaking her focus then get out (laughs) i wish that they had shown more interaction between kira and keiko i think that's the one thing i'm really missing in all of these episodes when kira is pregnant i really wanted to see that relationship grow stronger between two really powerful women i think there could have been a lot more moments shared that did involve miles and to your point about how the baby is born, I think in this case it is especially important that Kira gives birth in the Bajoran tradition because it seems like Bajoran women just have to be totally relaxed and then the baby just like shoots out, you know? <laughs> like, what? Amazing. I, I want to figure out if I can have a Bajoran pregnancy someday, <laughs> just five months gestation period, and then you just relax and the baby comes out. I mean, sign me up. Yes. <laughs> I'll get the little shaker ready for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's a crazy episode. It shows how beautiful it is when different cultures can come together in this way. Kiryoshi, I think in his life, he's always going to have that story. He's always going to have been carried by Kira. And so I can imagine in the future him maybe enjoying Bajoran customs more or choosing to partake in some of their festivals or something. It's good to think about all the different types of family. (laughs) Yeah, and Kira did speak to the bond that she developed with Kiryoshi while she was carrying him and that it was odd to go to this celebration after he's born where she holds him but has to give him back after and I think that that's got to be tough and I do think about surrogate moms or you know people who carry children who aren't their own for other couples that it's that's got to be a very difficult thing to overcome. I really sympathize for Kira in this situation where now she's moving out of their apartment and she's not going to be as involved in their life as before. It's special, and I'm glad that she was there to save Keiko and the baby's life. For real, yeah. I also think that it's great that when we see Kiryoshi later on, when they're going through the Molly crisis, that they have everyone taking turns babysitting him because it's such a great 
crew as family moment, you know, where the people who really take care of him most during this time are Worf and Dax, mostly because Dax has had nine kids, five as a mother, four as a father. So she's doing pretty well, Judzia Dax is, (laughs) with knowing how to raise children. I'm pretty sure she should write a parenting book. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I feel like she should. Yeah, she has over 900 years of experience. I think she should get on that. (laughs) One of my favorite moments in that episode, Time's Orphan, Worf has this amazing speech. He says, I am a Klingon warrior. I am a Starfleet officer. I have piloted starships through the Dominion minefields. I have stood in battle against the Kelvins twice my size. I courted and won the heart of the magnificent Judzia Dax. If I can do these things, I can make this child go to sleep. (laughs) Oh, what a glorious, glorious quote. I love that line so much. And Mm. isn't that just the heart of Worf? You know, he's done all these great things. He's just trying so hard to please this little baby. I think he even expressed a similar quote in Next Generation talking about Alexander. Yeah, he said that, I find that I would rather fight 10 Baldock warriors than face one small child. Similarly, yeah. Yeah, so very similar. Oh man, that writing for Worf is genius. Mm. Yeah, consistently Um, genius too. But what I notice is such a difference between the next generation and Worf and Deep Space Nine is that he is with Dax and this whole episode he's supposedly trying to prove to her that he's a good father so he's changing the diapers and he's spending two straight days (laughs) with the baby but really Dax I think doesn't really doubt him I think it's just Worf that doubts himself in the episode and It's amazing to see him trying so hard to do this right. I think he has some regrets about how Alexander was raised and how everything turned out. We find out in Deep Space Nine, old Alexander comes to the wedding of Worf and Dax and he says that he ended up spending time with his grandparents in Russia again growing up after he left the Enterprise. And so I think Worf is tormented by that decision in a lot of ways. And when he sees this little baby, I think he kind of wants to redo it over again. And I love seeing this soft side of Worf. And I love seeing the changes that he goes through from Next Generation to DS9. Yeah, I think that this is such a poignant moment for Worf because he is testing himself again to see if he is ready to be a father. And when Kiryoshi bumps his head, Worf is distraught and so, so concerned that he completely failed Kiryoshi, that he failed Jadzia, and he says to her, I failed Alexander, I failed Kiryoshi. I mean, I will agree that I think Worf could have been a way better parent to Alexander. I think that he had a very difficult position stacked against him because he didn't even know Alexander existed until he was on the ship and then his mom immediately dies. So it's a horrible, horrible situation to get thrown into, and I have a lot of empathy for that, but I do think that he could have handled this better because even when we see Alexander come back onto the Klingon ship, he's decided he's going to be a Klingon warrior after they've had this whole conversation in TNG that we talked about in our TNG part two episode. Essentially, Alexander says to Worf, you call yourself my father, but you haven't tried to see me or talk to me in five years. And there's this separation between the two of them. And Alexander also says to him, I wasn't the son you wanted, so you pretended you had no son. You never accepted me. You abandoned me. 
And I don't think Worf sees it as that. He didn't see it as abandonment. He probably saw it as this is what's best for him. I don't know how to care for him in the way that he needs. My Russian parents are far better at this. And I think that they had a very different opinion on how each other should have behaved. And it makes it very difficult because they didn't communicate. They didn't use their words. And mostly Worf didn't communicate because it's not Alexander's job as a child to communicate what he needs from his parents. I mean, it's important, but it's not his job. And so I just think that if Worf would have been more open, had a more open dialogue with Alexander about, I just want you to be protected. So that's why I want you to be a warrior so you can fight for yourself. And he even admits like, I don't like seeing him as the fool of the ship and these kind of things. But of course, Alexander, that probably comes across as feeling neglected, abandoned, or not accepted. And so I think they've so much miscommunication going on here that this beginning of this episode is really tough to watch. Yeah, I totally agree. I feel so bad for Alexander, mm-hmm. mostly because the transition that they chose to take from Next Generation to Deep Space Nine, I think is a bad one. I think it was an easy writing choice, but a bad choice to make Alexander go back to Russia because we had a whole episode where his grandparents came and said, we don't want to have him anymore. So Worf just said, too bad, here, have him back. I just feel like Alexander's character suffered from (laughs) um, that writing. I totally agree with you, Rihanna. I think that I can see both perspectives. I think Worf truly is insecure about his parenting skills because he never wanted to be a parent. He didn't even know he had a son until he was three. And so I think he he's felt his whole life that he's never been prepared to be a father. I mean, he knew his Russian father, obviously, and he knew his Russian parents. He didn't know his Klingon parents and his whole life was spent trying to emulate through stories he knew about Klingons. And so I think he created, which we talked about in part two, Worf has this very, very tough exterior and he doesn't talk about his feelings but when you have a kid you have to talk about your feelings because otherwise they're not going to understand what you're going through and they won't understand your perspective and that's how they learn is by seeing and by communication <laughs> like mm-hmm. what Rihanna's saying if Worf would have just said I feel like I'm not a good enough father for you so I want to send you back to my parents Alexander would have been like no dad you're great let me stay with you but Worf's priorities were not to have Alexander in his life clearly that's obvious The fact that Alexander chooses to serve aboard this ship, I think is super cool. And it's a sign that he's reaching out because he wants to be now a part of the Klingon culture, which he never wanted to before. I think it's important for everyone in their lives to explore every facet of themselves. And so Alexander's clearly going through this. He knows his human side really well. That's what he's most comfortable with. But he's never really fully committed to trying out the Klingon ways. He's been always very dismissive of them. And so I love to see, even though he's kind of a terrible officer, (laughs) I love to see it. I love to see Alexander on the ship and how everybody loves him. And the, he finds his own brothers eventually on the ship. And yeah, they kind of make fun of him a little bit, but I think it's a place where he truly belongs. And he's been missing that for most of his life. And so I'm so happy to see that Alexander is back in Worf's life. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I had a different perspective going into this episode. I was definitely more in the same ideas that Worf had of just being really confused and disconcerted as to why Alexander was trying so hard to learn the Klingon ways. But Worf had this unique experience of meeting Alexander as an older version of himself where he learned he was a peacekeeper and those kind of things and so I think that Worf was putting a lot of expectations on Alexander that I also carried and so I'm really glad you had this perspective Ashlyn because I at first thought it was just bad writing to try to get Alexander back into the plot to be like oh he is now just suddenly aboard this Klingon ship wanting to be a warrior but I think that's really lovely what you said about him exploring different facets of his life and that helps me to understand him in a way I didn't really want to before because I think I always just sort of saw Alexander as going that direction just as Worf did and so it took me as long as it took Worf to understand that no this is Alexander's journey and he still needs to take it and something that I really love is when they finally just like put away their masculinity for a second and just have a conversation and Worf puts away his ego. I think that it can be detrimental sometimes to have these hierarchy households in Klingon culture because then it doesn't allow for true discussion between father and son because it's supposed to be your father's the law and you have to listen to your father above all else because he will honor the house, blah, blah, blah. But when Worf says, I will teach you what I know to be a warrior and you will teach me what you know to be a father, And I think that that is a lovely way of Worf saying, I was not an acceptable father for you, and now you need to teach me. And he's giving out that olive branch. I just really enjoyed the fact that we get to see Worf changing so much in a father role. As you were saying, he's so much different than how he was in (laughs) The Next Generation, barely making compromises, where now he is laying aside all of that to say, I just, I need you to teach me. Yeah, I I think... It's unfair of Worf to assume that he knows Alexander after having not spoken to him for five years. Mm. Alexander could have done anything and Worf would not know. I did feel that way, how you felt, because it was kind of off-putting knowing that Alexander was heading towards this peacekeeping future to then see him on the battlecruiser. But I also think Alexander didn't have the tools to just say to Worf, I miss having you in my life and I want to connect with you. That's all he could have said. Instead, crazily, he just joins the service and mm-hmm. and he integrates himself into Klingon culture instead of just reaching out to Worf and he emulates him instead. I totally agree with you though. I, I think back to Worf in season one of Next Generation mm. when he's just, you know, being thrown around by Q. <laughs> and he's and barely, just- barely knowing his position in Klingon houses and families, let alone creating his own family. Absolutely. Yeah, on that vein, the next time we see Alexander in DS9 is when Worf is getting married to Dax. Spoilers for marriage. (laughs) Um, There's a great episode, The Way of the Warrior, that we bring back the character of Galron. And Worf helped Galron come to power because of the conflict with the the House of Duras. Anyway, it's the wrong key. This is Worf's also introduction, too, into Deep Space Nine. This is absolutely his introduction. And I also want to note that he first comes on the station after the movie Generations. 
because the Enterprise was destroyed in that movie. And Worf, when we see him in this episode, is mourning the loss of the Enterprise, and he really misses his crew, <laughs> which is me. Relatable. <laughs> when Worf is thinking about how much he loved hanging out in Ted Forward and Jordy down in engineering, I totally agree with him, and I sympathize. So this is removed. Worf has had a little bit of time. The Enterprise is destroyed, and now he's trying to figure out what to do with his life, and he's called to Deep Space Nine. Yeah, he's called to Deep Space Nine because there are some crazy conflicts brewing with the Klingons. It's a whole thing we won't get into, but essentially, Gowron in the High Council thinks that the Cardassian homeworld has been taken over by changelings, and so they are ready to launch an attack and to take Cardassia. And Cisco gets Worf on the station to try and mediate. And I think that this introduction to Worf is fantastic because we see him, as Cisco points out, in a very similar place where Benjamin Cisco was himself in the first episode, The Emissary, on the cusp of deciding if he should stay in Starfleet or abandon his Starfleet career to chase after some other unknown life that will be easier than the difficulties of Starfleet. And in this episode, we see Worf stand up to Galron and say that this isn't right. We can't attack Cardassia without knowing for sure if there are changelings infiltrating. And the Klingons go through a whole ordeal where they are leaving the Federation, they are attacking Cardassia, and Worf chooses to stand with the Federation and to stand with Deep Space Nine. And this then makes Galron cut ties from the House of Moog entirely, including his brother Kern, who is on the High Council, and stripping Worf and Kern and anyone else in the family of their name, so that once again, Worf is denounced and the son of none. And we also see, as Ashlyn said, legendary Klingons. So we see Gowron, and then we also get to meet Martok in this episode, which is glorious. And I just, I just did a chef's kiss because I oh, love Martok. Chef's kiss, yes. <laughs> My exactly. one-eyed baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. With two eyes in this episode, even. He hasn't gone through any Cardassian Dominion torture yet, which is wild. But <laughs> so, which... Okay, that's really sad. Anyway, <laughs> this is Deep Space Nine for you guys. He hasn't had the Four Lights treatment quite nope, yet. Nope, not quite. <laughs> so at the very end of this two-parter, we see Martog take quite a liking to Worf. He really respects him, and he knows of Worf, and he, he knows about he knows about that house of Moog. And so... Who doesn't? At, right? Legendary. And so at the end of this episode, we see that Martog comes up to Worf and says that you are no longer the house of none. You are instated into the house of Martog, which is important because in the episode where we see Alexander... He is also instated into the house of Martog at the end of the episode Sons and Daughters. Yes. And so we see generationally Martog taking in families because he knows that the family name and unit are so entrenched into Klingon culture and society that it's hard to get by without. And especially someone like Alexander who doesn't have a ton of warrior credit. He needs all the house name credit he can get to gain the respect <laughs> of his peers. And so I really liked this act of Martog 
Martog because Martog, I think, has always been sort of a father figure to Worf, and in part because of the ways in which he accepts Worf, you know, Starfleet leanings and all, and human upbringing and all. Yeah, totally. I love Martok, and I love how he just accepts Worf into his family because he sees that Worf is doing the right thing. Nobody should be supporting the Klingons going to war with Cardassia, mm-hmm. but because of Gowron's power and his blindness to the situation and lack of foresight, he does. And I think Martog knows that this is the wrong choice by Gowron. And so, of course, he's going to support Worf because Worf just sacrificed everything in the eyes of Klingon culture and in the Shane culture that they have. Once you lose your family, you lose it all. And Worf is lucky because he's well-rounded and he has Starfleet to fall back on. And he's not going to feel those same effects as maybe someone like Kern, his brother, would. Which we see in a whole different episode, The Return of Kern. (laughs) Which the real episode, I think, is Sons of Moog. (laughs) I like Return of Kern better. I think that's what it's called. (laughs) I think so, too. Mm -hmm. Kern is wasted because he is super depressed about the situation he was taken away from the high council he lost everything all of the lands that his whole family had owned are gone there's to galron has them mm-hmm. everything all of his money and so he comes to Worf and blames it on him kern asked Worf to partake in a ritual killing where Worf would be forced to kill Kern. The because, Tovar. Yeah, thank you, Ashlyn, and your Klingon knowledge. <laughs> because he has experienced such dishonor that the only way he can regain his honor is by going to Stovacor, which is the Klingon afterlife. Klingon he's, heaven, essentially. He's basically asking for an assisted suicide, even though he is a healthy person. Mentally, he is not. Worf does end up going through with this after much convincing of Kern. I think it took almost half the episode to convince Worf to Mm -hmm. do it. Because Worf, it's true, Kern points out that Worf is not feeling the same effects of losing his house as Kern is. Because Kern, honestly, we've talked about this in, you know, the last podcast, Kern has really made it for himself. He has really reinstated the House of Moog, and he brought it up pretty much single-handedly because Worf was off in Starfleet, not really interacting too much on Kronos or doing anything else. Kern had fleets of ships that he was commanding. He had power in the High Council. And I think it would be devastating to lose all of this. And he rightly points out to Worf, you have a home, you have a cozy career, but I don't have anything. And so Worf decides to kill him. And he almost does, except Dax and Odo walk in on this moment. And they call Dr. Bashir and Kern is saved. But it brings up some interesting morality questions around when is the point that you interfere in another person's culture? And should Worf have been killing his brother on DS9 in the name of this Maktovar? Questionable. <laughs> yeah, I actually have a posing a question for you, Ashlyn. If you were in Cisco's shoes, you're the commander of the station and you learn of this happening, how would you react? And how would you use your Starfleet command to address this situation? 
that's a doozy because obviously the Starfleet rule number one besides the Prime Directive is don't kill anyone. <laughs> Sorry, besides the Prime Directive, I love that that's included in murder. Sorry. <laughs> I don't think those go hand in hand, but like, <laughs> prime directive is important. But <laughs> I don't think it's rule number one. But like, like you know, don't tell, don't interfere, and mm-hmm. don't murder. Exactly, <laughs> that's Starfleet for you. Yeah, that's Starfleet. <laughs> Man, is it though? They really like interfering. So, I think in this situation, what Worf is trying to do does really conflict with the ethics that Starfleet is trying to uphold. And so I would probably tell Worf, you can do this, but only if you resign from Starfleet and give him the choice because I think to totally ban it is not right because that's something that Klingons really believe. And we see so many episodes where different members of the crew in Next Generation or people on the station help Worf carry out these Klingon traditions that mean so much to him. And so I think it's kind of hypocritical to help Worf with all these other traditions and things that he's doing, but then to not allow other ones. And so I think I would allow him to do the mock tovar, but only if he resigned. The stake of killing your brother is very high, and yes. as is leaving Starfleet. And so I would hope it would make Worf think about his decision. It was very rash that he just, you know, murdered him right there on the station with civilians around. And it, yeah, could cause a lot of problems but what about you rihanna what would you have done in cisco's shoes i think i really liked that answer i wouldn't even i wouldn't even have thought to do that that's genius this is why you're on the command track and i'm not (laughs) (laughs) while you're wearing those reds but yeah i honestly don't know i think that i did really respect cisco's anger in this moment like i would have been equally irate and equally just flabbergasted that Worf made this decision, like you said, without much thought. I think that what I find difficult to come to terms with is the fact that Kern is now trapped within Starfleet values and trapped within his Klingon dishonor. He's in an even more difficult position than when he boarded Deep Space Nine. And I don't think that is fair to Kern at all. I think that he came here because his brother's his only option for honor left. And it is a Klingon ritual, but Cisco says point blank, there's only so far that I'll respect other cultures, but when it comes to murder, I can't, you know? And like, that's completely understandable. And I think you're absolutely right. Resigning from Starfleet would be the only option for that. But I don't know. It's just, it does make me feel so horrible for Kern that then the rest of this episode, he's trying to get himself killed. And I'm just wondering what Worf is feeling through all of this because he's been living with humans for quite a while. He was raised by humans. He, you know, talks about this a lot, how he feels sort of the duality of that, of Starfleet values versus Klingon culture. And I wonder if he's at this internal war himself and if he feels responsible for Kern, I think what she does, because first of all, he's the elder brother. And even if it wasn't his fault, the Moktovar ritual didn't go through. And so I think that that is a huge burden on his shoulders that has to be impossible to try and deal with. So then it makes it even more complicated because when they go on this mission, they're against these Klingons and 
Kern is practically forced to save Worf's life, which then he says his dishonor is complete. And he feels this unending shame and dishonor from the fact that he took another Klingon life to save his brother because family duty goes over, you know, I guess, duty to a fellow Klingon. It's got to be really difficult to understand even what Worf is going through emotionally in this moment where he's so grateful that Kern saved his life, but he knows that it is causing Kern even more pain than he's already in. And I think something that's so poignant is the fact when Kern says to him, the sons of Moog should never have been separated. And I just, that kills me Mm. because I think about what a different life Worf would have led. I mean, of course, Starfleet would be less of a beautiful place without Worf. And I think that it was amazing that (laughs) Worf was, you know, able to join Starfleet and make such a huge impact. But it does make me think, like, what would have been different if Worf and Kern had been raised on Kronos together? Yeah, I, I agree. That is a tragic thing i wish we could see an alternate episode yeah <laughs> give me give me that the, the life of Mirror the moog children <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean kern says it to Worf. he says you were klingon but now your life is in starfleet mm. and i think that's that's all it is i think Worf is going through a spock moment you are a child of two worlds yeah and this is in direct conflict with his beliefs and his duty to his family, and his duty to be a Starfleet officer. The outcome of this is very hard to stomach, and I still don't know how I feel, because Kern is absolutely suicidal, but he wants to also die a warrior's death, and so, you know, he tries to get shot, and all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, he's really a liability, as Odo says. Mm -hmm. Odo kicks him off his squad, because he says he's ready to be killed. Mm-hmm. And so what they end up doing is erasing Kern's memory and giving him to a new house to have a new life. And I don't know how I feel about this. I really don't. I truly don't know if that's the right thing to do. Obviously, Kern was ready to die and give up his life. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I mean, what a horrible situation for Worf because now he can never see his brother again and he will never remember who he is. I mean, even if he sees him, Kern will never remember. And Worf has no brother now. Jeez, I, I don't know. This really goes to show that having an honorable family in Klingon society is more important than your blood family. And I think that for Kern, of course, this is the best situation. And Worf knows that as the elder brother, he has to make this decision. But I have another question. Do you think that Kern should have known about it and had been able to be a part of this decision to wipe his memory? Yeah, I think most of my qualms come from the fact that Kern does not willingly make this choice. Mm -hmm. I think he might have really considered it, and I think he might have agreed to it, Mm -hmm. honestly. Yeah, I don't, do you think so? I think absolutely, yeah, Yeah. he should have known, because taking away his autonomy reminds me uh, quite a lot of what we were talking about with Data and his mother not telling her she's an android. I think similarly, it's taking away the decision for a choice even. And then it also disallows Worf to have an actual amount of closure, which I know isn't Mm. the most important thing, but it's so hard when Kern turns to him and says, like, do I know you? And like, whose family are you part of? Or whatever. And Worf goes, I have no family. 
And oh, isn't that just like a bat left to the heart right there? Jeez. It, it really is right in the heart. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I uh, I have another quote from Worf that I love. It's, mm-hmm. I always hoped the House of Moog would return to its rightful place and I would return. But now I know that even if I did, I'd have no place there. I love that he's in the House of Martok. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, at least he has some family to go off of. But I mean, Worf has an estranged son, basically. No brother. We briefly, the briefest, briefest moments can talk about, we forgot, Worf does have a half-brother, Nikolai, who he was raised with in Russia. And in Next Generation, we totally forgot to talk about this episode yeah. last time on the pod yeah there's an episode called homeworld where he's just the worst brother and it's very annoying and he takes a lot of ethical questions going on there he's a scientist and he studies this culture and then ends up joining them and impregnating and impregnating one of them when their planet is threatened and he basically hijacks the enterprise's holodeck to move these people it's yeah, a crazy it's a situation thing. poor wharf but the result is that he ends up staying with this tribe of people and so again wharf's brother is gone the one he was raised with and he mm-hmm. can never be contacted again because starfleet can't break <laughs> their prime directive to yep. yeah and so now we're oh for two <laughs> Yeah, uh, brothers Jeez. leaving Worf, like literally not even able to contact again. Kind of le- leaving. Yeah. It's not like it goes past the estrangement of Alexander, which we see luckily has a bit more of some closure. But oh god, it's just yikes. I I also just one more nail in the memory wipe coffin. Oh, you god. might say. <laughs> um, I. <laughs> I just think that if Kern had been given the option, asking him, do you want your memory wiped or do you want to die? I think it might have him rethink his decision to want to die, Mm -hmm. even though he lost his honor, because maybe he actually doesn't want his memory wiped, but then he'd be willing to go to therapy or Mm. maybe... No, no i don't think so but i mean <laughs> yeah. I, I like your like idea but i think you're putting too many like human starfleet values yeah. on to Kern. i think you're right i think you're right because like stovacor is the highest honor see this is what bothers me is that he chose to take the moktavar moktavar sorry the moktavar ritual the ritual killing but he didn't get the choice to have his memory wiped so i think that still like he made this choice to die he should make the choice to have his memory wiped it should be equal because it is like dying it is like being erased before we move to our favorite genetically enhanced doctor i just want to do yet another shout out (laughs) to warp (laughs) because it is so rare to see a character existing on tv for this long and to see him have arc after arc and he just becomes better and better and better. Worf is like the greatest wine. Like he just, <laughs> he ages better as, you know, as it goes. You know he would be in Chateau Picard. Like just should, age it away. I should say he's the best blood wine. Uh, <laughs> but I, he's just a beautiful soul. And I'm again calling out into the void, screaming oh. for our Captain Worf, Admiral Worf show. Uh. Okay, so Rihanna, I want you to tar- to start talking about our your favorite doctor. <laughs> yeah, so for the longest time, Bashir was one of my very favorite characters on Deep Space Nine until I remembered how amazing Jadzia Dax is, but that's okay. <laughs> that's for another day. I 
have seen this episode, Dr. Bashir, I presume, upwards of 10 times. I love this episode. I think it's brilliant. It's where we get our first guest star appearance of Robert Picardo, um, who will turn out to be the doctor in Voyager, which is very exciting that we get to see him in this episode, even though he is a jerk face. <laughs> um, insert oh, curse word here. <laughs> yeah, he's a mean guy. <laughs> he is a mean guy. He's a, Dr. Zimmerman is problematic in many levels, but this episode is the only instance where we get a strong focus on Julian Bashir's family and his dynamic with his family. There are other episodes where he's empathizing with other people saying, oh yeah, I don't talk to my parents either. But this is the one that mainly focuses on his family unit. There's even an episode early on before this one where Cisco and Jake go back to Earth and Odo as well. And Odo has a scene where he talks to Dr. Bashir and says, oh, would you like me to say hello to your parents too? Because he's going to say hello to O'Brien's parents while he's on Earth. Mm. Bashir just says, nope. (laughs) yeah he's like no thank you (laughs) he says nothing about that and that's the first glimpse into his attitude with his parents absolutely which you know doesn't bode well when he doesn't even want to see his family when they're on earth he doesn't even want his friend to say hi to his family on earth (laughs) yeah you're right it goes an even deeper level even deeper I might end up writing my entire dissertation on lore and this episode, so I'm sorry if I rant a little, but so this episode starts out where we see Julian and Miles O'Brien playing darts as usual, having a merry old time, and O'Brien's kind of bragging about Molly and his relationship with her, and Bashir says, a father's work is never done, which in context to the whole episode is very interesting to me. And I find that this is a quite fascinating foreshadow to what's to come and what we learn about Richard Bashir and his parenting styles. But anyway, so essentially why Robert Picardo as Dr. Zimmerman comes on the station is because he is trying to make a long-term medical hologram, an LMH, where a medical hologram can be available in crisis situations long-term running if the doctors are dead or injured on long journeys star charting missions yeah (laughs) whatever what have you (laughs) this is really funny because this is exactly what ends up happening on voyager right but they never completed the lmh program for voyager's schematic so it's so ironic that they end up using the emergency medical hologram the emh that Dr. Zimmerman ended up basing off of himself, but they want to base it off Dr. Bashir because he is one of the best in the area. He's one of the best Starfleet doctors. He's very renowned. He's actually, he was like second in his class, all of these things at the academy. So when Zimmerman is asking Julian about who should I contact, who should I talk to, like what about your parents? Julian strictly says, I do not want my parents involved in this. Like, do not contact them. And of course, Zimmerman being the mean guy that he is, he immediately contacts his parents because he wants the tea. He wants to know what really goes on behind closed doors here. And when his parents arrive on the station, when Julian learns that his parents are there, Julian looks very pale and frightened, I noticed. Like, he actually looks very withdrawn, his posture changes and everything. His first words are, oh my god. Yeah. Like, that's (laughs) not a good reaction when you (laughs) hear that your parents, whom you haven't seen in 
many years come to the station. So we are seeing yet another family who has been estranged and who has lost touch and lost connection with something that's deeper than just the physical distance of space. It's very clear right away that there's a great deal of tension. In this first scene where we see Richard Bashir and Amsha Bashir talking with Cisco. Richard makes a little comment that says, sometimes you have to push him a little. And he mentions pushing Julian into a career in medicine. And his mother intervenes before he can say what he wanted to become because it's clear that these are parents who were very pushy for him to follow medicine and follow what they wanted. And so I literally wrote in my note, this family dynamic is tense AF. (laughs) But yeah, how did you feel when starting this episode, Ashlyn? I had all the same observations that you did. It's not a good situation. And Dr. Bashir is initially, I thought, because I didn't really understand the whole situation, he seems super rude to his Mm. dad specifically. He's very aggressive towards him. And he just replies with, one word answers or very condescending answers and after we learn when the truth comes out about what happened to Bashir and how he was genetically enhanced I kind of understand why Dr. Bashir is acting this way towards his parents because he was genetically enhanced before the age of seven like Mm -hmm. before his seventh birthday that's very young (laughs) and i think a lot of his reasons and he says it a little later too it's because they never gave him a chance when he clearly had learning disabilities like very extreme learning disabilities as a child and so they wanted to help him and instead of putting him into educational therapy instead of getting him tested Mm -hmm. or trying to figure out anything that was going on with him they just genetically enhanced him and his dad took that option and I think this caused a lot of problems for Bashir in the future because it didn't help his self-esteem because he knows that everything that he's done was made and it wasn't because of his hard work and his perseverance I mean obviously yes like med school like very hard very difficult you did mention he was second in his class so someone who was not genetically enhanced Mm -hmm. this this woman I can't remember her name his rival was a very hard worker but it's hard because Bashir also cannot understand the perspective of his parents and they didn't understand how much they were suffering watching him struggle to learn because they couldn't do anything for him and so I think it was their helplessness that drove them to enhance him yeah (laughs) but I mean obviously that's not the solution and the admiral who comes at the end of the episode cannot forgive them because that's what started the eugenics wars was that world war three in the star trek timeline was because of enhanced humans taking over the world (laughs) yeah the first thing i find highly troubling about this idea that his parents immediately jumped to augmentation and genetic enhancement instead of educational training and testing is that it's a very ableist perspective and it is completely disallowing his handicaps, his learning disabilities, and erasing them. And when Julian was talking about his augmentation, he says, in the end, everything but my name was 
altered in some way. And he stopped calling himself Jules after that because he was completely feeling like a different person and he had changed entirely. I think that is very troubling that they took on this perspective that their son was not quote unquote good enough. I think Bashir's father, Richard, he even says at one point that he wanted to save Julian from a quote, life of underachievement. And this is sickening to me that this is what they think most of when they took him to Ardigian Prime to alter him genetically was that he would be an underachiever. Instead of thinking about how this would affect him socially and emotionally, they focused instead on him wanting to be their smart son. And then this turned into a detriment for Julian's psyche because he talks about himself as a fraud, unnatural, not from nature, freak, or monster. He uses all of these words in this episode, and I think that he thinks so little of himself because he thinks that everything about him was created, was crafted. He says to Richard, he says, you used to be my father, now you're my architect. And I think that these are very troubling things because it's changing everything about him, and I'm not sure that this is how the writers were going, but I was also thinking about the perspective of intersex children when parents make the choice to do the genital cutting depending on what the doctor recommends so that then they essentially decide for the child what gender they will present as. There are studies and cases that show that intersex children grow up not understanding or not feeling like their gender because they were not given that choice. And I think that in a way this feels very similar to the way that Julian was talking about how I'm not Jules anymore. Like he says a new Julian Bashir was born out of this, you know, and everything he knew about himself died that day and he had to completely change himself. And I just can't empathize really at all with the parents. I understand that his mother broke down at, nearing the end of the episode saying that it was so hard to watch you struggle, as you said, Ashlyn, and that's not an excuse to not give your son the option and not give him the autonomy to make those choices. And of course, it's also a legal experiment on a child. There's just, it's layers and layers of horrible decision-making from his parents who then pretty much reshaped Julian's life. Like, I think a lot about what would happen if they had let Julian grow as he was with his disabilities and what kind of life he would have led would have been entirely different. But Julian says, I stopped calling myself Jules when I was 15, when I found out what you'd done to me. I'm Julian. And so the thing that even is more devastating is that he didn't even know about his augmentation until he was 15. So years after it was done, he really didn't understand what was going on. And he says, Jules Bashir died in that hospital because you couldn't deal with the shame of having a son that didn't measure up. And so I don't know how Julian could come to terms with this life and I don't know how he could come to terms with his parents at the end of this episode. I felt similarly to the episode with Riker and his father that it felt a little forced that Julian was just trying to like reconcile because if I were in this situation, I don't think I could ever like barely look at my parents in the eye, let alone understand my mother's perspective, be like, oh, we were so scared for you. He was like, yeah, but <laughs> you didn't give me that choice. So I don't know. What do you think about this ending here and you know, I mean, the father is sent to prison in New Zealand and he does sort of pay for his crime, but do you think it's enough? And do you think that Julian was right to sort of begin to do the healing process or how did you feel about this? 
I think it's a good first step. Julian, I, I, I'm calling him Julian now. Um, yeah. Bashir has a quote. He says, that's how we deal with problems in our family. We just come up with a new plan. We never take responsibility for anything. Mm. And that really struck me because what his dad is doing at the end of the episode is finally taking responsibility for something. He's going to spend two years in prison. That's not a light sentence. I mean, maybe it is kind of a light sentence, but I am comforted that he is finally giving up something for his son. Mm-hmm. And you know that's all he's going to be thinking about those two years. And so I think it's a step in the right direction. I hope that the walls in their relationship continue to break down as Richard understands Bashir's perspective more and more. That's my hope anyway. In, In terms of what they did by augmenting him, I empathize, but I don't sympathize as my my high school calc teacher used to say to me whenever I would (laughs) ask for an extension on my homework, I empathize, (laughs) but I don't sympathize. Uh, (laughs) That's a a true story. Um, Shout out to my calc teacher. Oh, but, thank you for that, Ash. Um, we needed yeah, that. Yeah, I've got to add a little humor uh-huh. into this dark um, podcast. Dark <laughs> AF. What I really love about all of this, we see this whole episode where Bashir is struggling with this, and he's struggling with the fact that it's come to light amongst all of his closest friends mm-hmm. and his commanding officers. This is a tough thing to have people around you know about, mm-hmm. because what if they treat him differently? Mm. But luckily, Bashir has the best friend, O'Brien. And I love this last scene because it ends with them playing darts and O'Brien says, hang on a second. (laughs) If you've been genetically enhanced, does that mean you've been letting me win this whole time? And Bashir's like, "Eh, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so instead of throwing a tantrum or saying, I'm never playing with you again, O'Brien just takes him back about six feet and says, okay, now we'll play. You play from there. I play from here. <laughs> and and that's all it takes, mm-hmm. you know, is just someone who's really sympathizing with Bashir's situation and saying, okay, well, that means you're better than me. So let's make it more fair. And the example you gave about intersex children and how their parents decide what sex they are before they're uh, emotionally mature to make that choice themselves. Mm-hmm. This episode mostly had me thinking about children with disabilities because there's arguments to be made because now we have the technology to alter DNA. And, you know, in, in Star Trek, that's how, as I mentioned, the war started. Yep. Don't do it, guys. The argument is if you can alter DNA, why not get rid of Asperger's or Down syndrome or mm. blindness or deafness or any kind of disease that makes you physically impaired? But the thing is, that's what makes you, you. We all have different things that bring something special to the table. And I think Julian would have been perhaps a much more emotionally healed person if he had not been genetically altered. And yeah, he he probably wouldn't have been a doctor, but maybe he would have. You never know. He never got the chance to fight for himself and to work and to become better on his own. And so I think that's the crux of his problem. And I think that people are who they are. And the problem is not that someone is deaf. The problem is that society does not accept deaf people. And so we have to all work together to create 
a world where people can arrive who they are and just be accepted because we already have these things in place for them. That was beautiful. Thank you, Ashlyn. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I really appreciated that O'Brien said to Bashir in this episode when Bashir is really on himself, calling himself a freak and a monster and all of that. O'Brien's kind of like, hey, hang on. Like, they didn't alter you to have passions and to have care and to have bedside manner. Like, you wouldn't be a good doctor if you didn't have those things. Like, you still need to have those fundamental compassion elements and those things that you can't alter, you know, through DNA and through these resequencing. And I think that that is the mark of true family is when they meet you where you're at like you said Ashlyn they recognize who you are and know that something that other people defined of you isn't everything that you are and I think that that is what makes O'Brien such a special friend and makes the Deep Space Nine crew such a good family is because they all accept each other as is flaws and all a lot of them have messy messy pasts or messy families or really tough situations they're going through but they come together and they understand each other in ways that sometimes i think their family never could yeah i totally agree i think if it's okay with you i want to talk about maybe the messiest family of all yes let's go <laughs> let's yeet into it you guessed it it's esri dax esri dax <laughs> we only get one season of her but boy do we get one episode about her wild family oh jesus it's wild called... is an understatement <laughs> it's called prodigal daughter and this is fairly early on into esri's timeline she has been joined with the dax symbiote not super long she's still learning her pronouns sometimes learning all of these different things about herself and about the symbiote so she goes back home to trill because her mother essentially gives her an ultimatum i will help you find chief o'brien if you come home for a bit which Right off the bat, I wrote down emotionally manipulative, controlling, and just all around not great. Super, super emotionally manipulative. If you ever want to emotionally manipulate someone, just watch this episode and emulate this mom because (laughs) O'Brien goes missing under very mysterious circumstances and Esri's mother just happens to have high influence in the Trill police force. And so that's why she's in the situation at all. But Esri hasn't been home in three years for a good reason. And every time her mom tries to get her to come back, she says no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so once we get there... We find out that she has two brothers, both older than her, Mm -hmm. and they're both sucked into running this family business. And this is a mining business that the mother has been the head of for a long time. There's no mention of a father. I don't think we know anything Mm -hmm. about Esri's father. No. But time after time, the mother, she puts arguably too much responsibility on these sons, but it's not for the right reasons. It's for manipulative reasons yep. <laughs> is and, and that's the whole reason why they're in the company and so these two men but the, you know boys are very deeply unhappy in their situation but because they're trapped in trying to uphold the family business and trying to keep the mom happy and trying to keep their status up they are trapped and feel like they can't leave mm-hmm. and it is a very terrifying 
place to be. And I don't think they realize how trapped they are until Esri comes to visit. And she sees it. And she's a therapist. And so she sees all of these red flags going on in her family. And she does her best to kind of suss everything out. Yeah, you know, as much as I don't like Esri only because, unfortunately, she was the replacement of my favorite character, Josiah Dax, I had so much respect for her in this episode and really started to understand her in a different way and her upbringing and how this is sort of compiling with her joining of the Dax symbiote, where I think she's coming into this family with 900 years of perspective that it allows her to see her family in a new light and to see her mother in a way. Of course, I think she knows how manipulative her mother is. Obviously, she hasn't been home in three years. She does know. But I think this allows her more courage and bravery and the ability to talk through these issues with her brothers, especially her younger brother, Norvo. I don't know if he's younger, but he's... You he's know. middle. He's middle. Okay, yeah. So her, her he's a classic, the youngest brother. Yeah, classic middle child classic, syndrome yeah. from Norvo. Oh man, Norvo's going through it. He's the angsty artist trying to make it in the world, and he says things like, "Oh, my art is derivative and not good." Blah blah blah. And Ezri immediately says, "Those are mother's words." And so I think it takes the knowledge of the Dax symbiote to help her to understand her family better, which is a super interesting dichotomy. I also found it interesting as well uh, that when she's trying to talk about the joining, her mother immediately shuts it down and does not want to discuss Ezri being joined because none of their family's been joined. It was not even, Esri was not supposed to be joined, but because, you know, the Dax symbiote had to be joined and she was the only trill on board. Because of the accident, the only way to make the Dax symbiote survive. Yeah. Yeah. So I also found that to be really interesting where she comes home and immediately her mother's like, you cut your hair. I don't like it. And I also found some parallels to a person coming out as transgender or non-binary, you know, still struggling to identify themselves and then going home to a family that doesn't understand them. It's got to be just really difficult. And I saw those parallels sort of working in the episode. We think often when we go home to our families after long periods of being away, we see them in different light and we see ourselves in different light because of that. And I think that in Esri's case, it emboldened her to speak out against the things that she saw were problematic within her family. But I think for Norvo and Janelle, her brothers, she was able to have an outsider's perspective and see that they, like Ashlyn said, are feeling trapped and feeling like they can't escape this mother's grip. (laughs) Yeah, hearing Norvo speak throughout the episode after Esri does say to him, at the beginning of the episode, those are mother's words. Mm-hmm. I continued to listen to him when he talked about himself for the rest of the time, and it was absolutely her words the entire time. And, oh, yeah, I just didn't like that. I don't think Norvo realizes at all what has been done to him and mm-hmm. how much he's internalizing his mother's words. But if you're in a situation where all you hear your whole life is criticism and then positive reinforcements only of your worst traits, it's terrible. It's no wonder he is so messed up. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he like should full we of talk murders. About it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was like, should we go there? <laughs> Murder Marika. I don't want to talk about it, but like, sure. Yeah. So the whole reason that O'Brien went to Trill in the first place was to find the wife of one of his friends 
in section 31 lol and it turns out she's been murdered by Norvo, by the younger brother, because he lost control and he wanted power. He just lost control of the situation and ended up murdering her. And so, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it was wanting power. It was more him trying to appease his mother and saying like, look, mom, I did something right. I'm trying to appease you because he doesn't know how else to live his life besides being wrapped entirely around his mother's finger. I really was thinking about the classic horror movie Psycho because that's how that is spoilers for Psycho. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, that's how Psycho ends. It turns out it was the son pretending to be his mother, murdering all these people. But he has the same types of mommy issues. <laughs> yeah, same mommy issues, same behavioral trait, which is so disturbing. I, I could see a glimpse into what Norvo could become if he hadn't been caught and he was allowed to stay in that house and didn't go to prison. <laughs> um, yeah, it would have been much worse. I feel also really bad for this older brother, Janelle, because being the older sibling, you know, mm, it's so good. <laughs> but he's totally trying to hold the family together. And sometimes holding the family together means when push comes to shove, because he wanted to please his mom and in instead of being honest with her that they were in a bit of a pickle with the company, he turns to the Orion Syndicate because they offered him help and they knew that the company was vulnerable. And so he took it and that's what got them into this whole situation. Yeah, I feel bad for Janelle because he's trying to be the glue in this extremely dysfunctional family, but he's being throttled at every turn by the poison of the mother over this family and as we says our mother is a force of nature and that is true in every respect <laughs> yeah and at the end her mother's desperate for reassurance from Esri, but she won't give it to her because she knows that she pushed Norvo and she's pushing Janelle and she is insistent that Janelle get out of this company and go find his own life because this is a mess. It does make me feel sorry for Esri that she feels partially responsible for Norvo because of the distance that she's had with her family that she feels as though she could have intervened sooner but like how could you I think she did the right thing in protecting herself from this toxic family environment and that there's nothing else she could have done you know I was about to ask you you read my mind as usual <laughs> I was about to ask you I too I agree that it is not Esri's fault but I wonder how much responsibility you bear for your siblings in this type of situation. My thought is that it is an act of self-preservation. She is getting the F out of there while she has a chance by joining Starfleet. And she's already been in the service for three years, I believe, mm -hmm. um, when she's joined with Dax. So I think she knew that this was a horrible situation and she had to get out of it. And so she had the foresight and the strength when she was younger to resist her mother, which is amazing. But I do wonder if maybe she had called only the brothers or created some sort of special thing that only they had interest in together. But also she's young and she's just trying to not get sucked into this horrible family business. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely don't blame Esri, but I do understand why she feels partially responsible because 
first of all, just as a family member, I think that we do take on the responsibilities of our family, whether we want to or not often. And I think that in this toxic environment, it's harder to separate because the mother uses ideals of like, we family stick together no matter what, blah, blah, blah. She's enforcing this family dynamic, which is very detrimental to all of her children. And I think that Esri probably regretted not inviting them to DS9 sooner, not having them, you know, let's all go to Ryza together for the weekend or something, you know, just to be like, hey, how are you guys holding up? Are you killing anyone recently? <laughs> no, I'm you know, I, I, I tease, but like, still. Basic questions. Yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> I just, uh, God, I mean, it's horrible, but it's not her fault. I think we should now talk about the most stable family in Deep Space Nine. (laughs) Yes, I've been looking forward to this all podcast. It's the one. It's the only. It's the Cisco. (laughs) (laughs) So we talked a little bit about the father-son dynamic when we were doing our pilot series and we reviewed the episode The Emissary from the Deep Space Nine pilot. But I do want to go over it briefly again and just first applaud the fact that we have a African-American father who is here for his son. We don't see any distance between them. They're very close physically and emotionally. And to portray this on television is so important to show present fathers where stereotypes often led in the other direction and I think that it's genius that they chose Benjamin Sisko to be a phenomenal captain as well as a phenomenal father and to show that you can do both you can have it all if you're Benjamin Sisko <laughs> yeah definitely I also love that Sisko's father appears in a lot of these episodes because then you have two generations of African-American fathers showing up for their sons yes all the time and I just I love these characters and I love seeing episodes where the three of them hang out a lot because it's a fun dynamic between the three of them i think often that ben and jake end up turning into brothers when they're in new orleans rather than father and son they're more like brothers in that situation it's just so fun i love watching these episodes totally like what i would give to just go into cisco's the restaurant and like eat some amazing creole food and just talk with the three of them wow don't even (laughs) get me started (laughs) give me that jumbo shrimp (laughs) but oh so firstly i want to talk about the wonderful episode explorers where cisco is determined to retrace the path of an ancient bajoran vessel that flew all the way to cardassia or to the Cardassian border from Bajor and how Benjamin Sisko is struggling to connect with Jake in the beginning of this episode because Jake just wants to hang out with a girl. He's starting to get older, getting more teenage years and Ben has a talk with Dax and I love what Dax says here is she says you'll have other adventures they'll just be different and Mm. I think that's such an important thing to learn about when your kids are growing up. I remember my mom would say a lot that she said, I loved every single phase that you girls went through. She's like, I loved when you were two and running around in diapers. She's like, I loved your teenage years. It was so fun to grow with you in these different ways. And so I think about that a lot for Ben Sisko, how he is learning to navigate 
that Jake isn't always going to be hanging off his arm and be wanting to do all these things with him, that he has other interests, he has Nog, he has his writing, he has girls, you know, all of these certain things that maybe aren't completely surrounded by his father. Yes, absolutely. Well, actually, I want to ask you, why do you think Jake changed his mind to go with him? I think it was entirely based off the fact that he got into the Wellington writing program. Um, Pennington. Which- yeah, Pennington. Yeah, in Wellington. And I did my study abroad in Wellington, so I love a good shout out to New Zealand because randomly, Star Trek talks a lot about New Zealand and I freaking love it. <laughs> this is now the third time we've talked about New Zealand on the Dura Sisters podcast. Remember, Tom Paris was hanging out in New Zealand. Yep. Dr. Bashir's dad is going to prison in New Zealand. <laughs> Yeah, there's a penal colony there and a writing school, so they got it all. (laughs) They got it all. Two islands. You can hold a lot of stuff. Let's go. (laughs) But yeah, so I think it was based entirely off the fact that Jake was now wrestling with the decision of should I stay on Deep Space Nine or should I go to Pennington? Should I stay or should I go? Yet again, yeah, yeah, struggling with these these decisions of family or career. And it's really sweet when Jake is worried about leaving his dad alone on the station because he's like, dad, I got to get you a girlfriend. Like, I got to set you up with somebody. And I think that, you know, it's kind of like a, a jokey way, but I think it comes from a place in Jake's heart where he knows that the death of his mother and Ben's wife was so hard for the both of them that he doesn't want to leave his dad without that cornerstone that is Jake, you know, and their relationship is so strong that I think Jake is really looking out for his dad in this moment and knowing that it would be really, really tough for Jake to leave, especially when they're just settling into DS9 and things are going really well and... I think that it's a beautiful choice that Jake makes to go on this trip with him and to have these conversations and to be like, dad, I got into the school, you know, and he really also just cherishes Ben Sisko's advice too. And I think that that's lovely is that he really listens to his dad on these moments because he knows that his dad's going to give really good advice. Like Sisko is an amazing dad and he really knows just what to say in each moment to help steer Jake in a direction that is productive for the both of them. I think one thing that really impresses me about Ben Sisko is that whenever he hears news from Jake that is surprising or shocking or anything, he does not judge him and he only says supportive things. So, I mean, who knows? I'm sure Sisko is psyched that Jake is writing and going to writing school, but I have a feeling that if Jake had said, I want to be a classical violinist, Sisko <laughs> would have been like, great, great, I'll meet you at Juilliard, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> totally. You know, no matter what it was, like if Jake had said, I want to become a plumber, he'd be like, great, cool. all our toilets will be fixed, you know? like. <laughs> He's so supportive and non-judgmental. He pushes down whatever his initial reactions are inside, and he is only positive towards Jake and only supportive. And I'm not saying that he, in this situation, he has any negative feelings. I'm honestly mostly thinking about the very sad episode, The Visitor, because... In that episode, we only see Cisco a couple of times throughout, and each time, because there's been an accident and Ben Cisco is stuck in temporal space, basically not experiencing time, a second could be 
30 years it all feels the same to him and then jake continues to age without him and so cisco appears at different parts of his life and every time cisco appears to jake he's letting jake control the situation and all cisco says is like tell me everything you know and jake is weeping because he's happy to see his dad again but also he's giving him all of this really really big news like i got married and then years later i left my wife or I'm dying, <laughs> you know, like all of these very huge things. And all Cisco does is support him and give him wisdom and give him love and say, we might only have a few minutes. Let's enjoy it together. And that really struck me because there's no way that if I was Ben Cisco and I was only appearing randomly during different times of my children's lives, I would not be that calm. I would be freaking out. It just takes such strength on Cisco's part and patience with the situation to react that way. And so I noticed that when I'm watching these other episodes that are not heart-wrenching, mm -hmm. that I just really, really respect Cisco and how he treats Jake because he treats him like an adult. He treats him like a brother. Oh, I just love him. I love them both. <laughs> yeah, God, I just, I think that that support is so important from a parent because especially for someone who has already lost one parent in a tragic moment to have the other parent step up and really go above and beyond the call of parent duty <laughs> i think that ben is making strides to make sure that not only is jake happy but that he's thriving in his life he reads jake's stories and gives him real critiques he's not just like oh great you did great you know he says well this is awesome and all but like have you experienced any of this i feel like it sounds a little bit like you're just writing this without knowing exactly what it feels like i think that that is also important is that he's guiding jake in the best way he knows how and he has such sage wisdom when he says it's life jake you can miss it if you don't open your eyes i think that this episode the visitor solidifies to ben just how important jake is in his life and how fleeting life can be for a captain in starfleet especially a captain in starfleet heading into a very devastating war and the visitors in beginning of season four so the war is still on the fringes but it's coming closer each day and i think that the reality of this is yes this is a random accident in engineering but as we've talked about on the on the defiant on the defiant yeah thank you but as we talked about in previous podcasts that these moments of crisis remind us how important family is to us and I think if we first want to look at this episode just through Ben's perspective, you're absolutely right that he has such strength to be able to just see Jake. In one moment, he's on the sick bay and Jake has lived without him for about two or three years. And Jake is saying to him, like, don't leave me. And he's crying and like, we're all crying and it's awful. And I think that that instant helped ben to whatever white void he's in in, in those in between when he's phasing in and out of the temporal ether or whatever the hell mm -hmm. he's in i think it solidified for him i have to be strong for jake in 
these moments of his life where I'll catch him. And so he probably like steals himself for the next moment and then sees Jake as an older man and is like, you published books? That's amazing. Congratulations. Tell me all about it. You know? And so I think it's one way to show Jake that he needs to keep living his life. And he says to him at one point, I want you to keep living your life. You know, when he sees him again and his wife has left him and Jake has been desperately looking for a way to get Ben Sisko back. Ben says to Jake, he says, I want you to live your life. I want you to keep writing. And that is what sparks Jake to keep writing and to keep living his life only after his dad explicitly told him that in those, what, like two minutes that he saw him. And oh God, it just breaks my heart. But it also just tells me again how strong-willed Benjamin Sisko is especially when it comes to his son. Like, he would literally float through a temporal ether as long as his son was happy. Totally. I think one of the most telling moments is the scene you mentioned where Ben is in sickbay and Dax and O'Brien and Bashir, they're all trying to get Cisco to stay. They're trying to trap him. And in the meantime, after this is all, you know, being explained that the science stuff is happening, Cisco looks at Jake almost a minute after he's appeared and he's like, how are you doing? Because he knows. All Ben hears is, it's been three years. And then he is able to process in that 30 seconds, holy, you know what? (laughs) This is too much to process right now. And so I'm going to shove it back like you're saying, and I'm just going to help Jake and he puts everything aside because it's all for Jake and that's his priority is Jake (laughs) absolutely yeah he just says how are you doing and I just thought that was so powerful because he's meeting him where he is and he's saying tell me and I'll help you while I'm here well and gosh this just reminds me of when I think I'm doing fine and then I have either my mom or dad call me on the phone and say hey how are you and then I just burst into tears because like you know in that moment that you're like safe with them and that's exactly what Jake does and it breaks my heart because he only gets these snippets of time with him so when Tony Todd as adult Jake sees Ben again and his acting there is just phenomenal because you can see that he's trying to breathe in every moment he gets with his dad because he knows it'll be so fleeting and we talked a bit about this in our next generation family podcast where Jordy loses his mom without like a trace and I think it's similarly devastating well in a different way because he gets to see him only you know every couple decades but it's still so much I think harder than having the closure of someone's death when they're just gone like completely just vanish in front of his eyes always so much to the point that his wife leaves him because he's so focused on getting Ben back and on he spends so much of his life devoted to that and devoted to figuring it out and I just I think it goes both ways like we talked a bit about how incredibly devoted Ben is to Jake but I think that also Jake is so incredibly devoted to his father and he knows that a life without his dad being ripped away from such a young age is just pales in comparison to what he wanted and what he thinks he can have if he can get him back to that moment. It's a reminder that we destroy ourselves if we live too much in the past and Jake was not able to have that balance but honestly reasonably so. I think to his credit, no one could really come out of this situation okay. I think another really difficult fact about Ben's appearances is that he does not age and Mm -hmm. he looks exactly the same. 
And so to Jake, who's only getting to see him every, you know, starts out like a year and then three years and exponentially gets longer and longer. And at one point it's like 20 years goes by Mm -hmm. without seeing him. And we're so used to Deep Space Nine and how everybody looks and how it feels. But Jake is so far removed from that environment. Seeing his father in his Starfleet uniform looking exactly the same on the day he vanished, just that alone is too hard to take in because it brings back all of those memories of the past. And it traps him. And I, I think that's exactly, I mean, anyone would cry whenever they see their dad after so many years. But I think that's why he always breaks down whenever he's back, because he's back to being a kid again. And he's back to being without his father. And he's safe when he's with him. Mm. Um, God, I, gutting me here, Ashlyn. <laughs> you're true, though. Well, and to your point about how devoted Jake is to his father, Ben Sisko could not have survived if it wasn't for the lifelong work that Jake did studying the effect that was happening to him. There's no way, there's no way he would have survived if Jake had not stopped writing and gone and gotten his degrees in engineering and figured all of this out. He saves Cisco's life and he pays for it. It's the heartbreaking conclusion of this episode. Because of some techno babble, Jake realizes that the only way for the rubber band to snap and for Cisco to be sent back into his original time is for Jake to die while he's with Cisco. And it's so heartbreaking because Jake is revealing this as Cisco's there and you see it coming on his face he's realizing what jake has done for him and i mean find yourself a son that will sacrifice himself for you real. know for you and not only for the good of ben but for the good of past baby jake who's gonna grow up without a father ah uh, yeah it changes the future but again it's the same situation that happened with molly like we mentioned cisco when he goes back to little jake at the end of the episode he is haunted by this and he has memories of jake's future that jake will never know yeah i wonder if cisco ever talks about this to jake in the future i think it builds a deeper appreciation for his son and for the life that they have together and i think if that were the case i would look at my son every day and just be so grateful that he was there and which actually it's crazy that this kind of, in a different way, happens again when Ben Sisko is experiencing visions from the prophets and far beyond the stars because he sees in this vision of a 1950s Earth setting mm-hmm. that his son equivalent, even though he's not his son in the vision, Jake is still this image, gets shot and killed by the police in this vision. And so once again, through this alternate lens, Ben is seeing his son die in front of him in his arms. And God, like Cisco is really going through it with like his son and these experiences. But I think that where in some people that could really break you and make you want to feel less connected so you didn't have to hurt as much. I think for Cisco, it makes him feel a stronger bond and a deeper gratitude for his son, which then I think is even more incredible that he's still able to let his son go and do what he needs to do. Like he's letting him stay on the station during the occupation and you know, his dad, he was saying in the episode A Time to Stand to Judzia, how do I explain that I evacuated every 
Federation citizen of Deep Space Nine except his grandson when he's talking yeah. about talking to his dad about leaving Jake on the station. I, I just, love that quote. Yeah. yeah, I just got to applaud Ben for still being able to let Jake have his own autonomy after seeing him die in these different realities and going through the pain of feeling like you lost him. I feel like I would become a clingy, crazy mom if that were the case, you know? And yeah, uh, yeah it's just infinitely impressive to me. I totally agree. Yeah, I have nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to talk about Joseph Sisko for a bit? Yeah, Daddy let's Sisko. talk about it. In the episode you just mentioned, A Time to Stand, while he's talking to Joseph, Sisko says to him, you didn't raise me to be a liar. And he says, I raised you to be a chef. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I love that quote. And I that, I mean, that's all you need to know. Joseph Sisko is, I think, kind of a simple guy. Mm-hmm. His whole life is the restaurant to the point that he has never visited them on Deep Space Nine. Well, I, at one point, maybe he comes. Well, he does, but, but it's way later on. Yeah. I had a question about that. Actually, do you think that it comes from just a love of the restaurant? Or what do you think are his true motives of staying on Earth and not going to see his son and grandson on Deep Space Nine? You know... I think Joseph knows that him and Ben live in two separate worlds. And I think for some reason, he's afraid to cross that line. I don't know. I think he's not comfortable in the world of the Starfleet officers. When Cisco goes home with Jake in the episode Homefront, we really see that Joseph Cisco does not like to follow orders. So when Starfleet comes, they have to test him to see if he's a changeling. And he refuses to until it's more commonplace practice, because then later, a few weeks later, everyone on Earth is being tested for being a changeling. And I was very shocked because it's kind of like anti-maskers and people who don't believe in the coronavirus, because (laughs) Joseph Sisko is literally saying, like, I have my rights. I don't want the government to tell me what to do. I want to live my own life. And I know I'm being safe. I know I'm not a changeling. And this rhetoric is very similar to what you hear with people who don't want to wear masks because they think my rights are being taken away. I don't want the government in control of what I do and telling me what to do. And I know I don't have corona, so it's fine. And I'm being safe and I'm not going to pass it on. And I was really shaken (laughs) by watching this episode during this pandemic because I think the idea of changelings being among us on Earth, I mean, this is like a much deeper discussion for a different, for maybe our (laughs) pandemic podcast. I don't know. I I hope we never (laughs) do that series. But I think the idea of changelings living among us and we don't know if they're impersonating our family members or or what they're doing, I think it's an eerie metaphor for Corona because we could be asymptomatic and not even know. And so Joseph Sisko does not like being ordered around. And I don't think he would do well even if he was on DS9 visiting. You know what I mean? I think also the restaurant is his livelihood. And so even though his son is his priority, it's really not. (laughs) The restaurant is his priority. I don't think Ben has any issues with that. I think he knows. I think he misses him. But they do butt heads a little bit when they're together about some things. But overall, I think they have a pretty solid relationship, even if they don't talk all the time. 
Wow, thank you. Yeah, that was really well said. I agree that exactly your thoughts about why Joseph doesn't come to the station more often. I think it's also similarly to, we have some family members who like are not as willing to go to the doctor because they just are like, nah, I'm, I'm healthy. It's good. And so similarly, Joseph's health isn't great in Homefront and Jake and Ben are very worried about him and he actually like collapses in this two-parter and it's messy. He Um, even says that the Starfleet Medical wants to make a case study out of him because soon, like in the next couple months, he will have no organs that were originally his own. Right. (laughs) And so like if my dad had no organs that were his own, I'd be like, hey, have you gone to the doctor recently? (laughs) You know, so I think, yeah, I completely agree with Ben and Jake's reactions in this. I think that's mostly why they're butting heads. Like, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of horrible tragedy in their past. There's, like, one small thing, which we're about to get to, kind of big thing, but it's not like, Cisco's not finding out that he was genetically enhanced, you know? It's not to that extent. He's mostly like, dad, you have to take care of yourself you're driving me crazy (laughs) exactly yeah this dynamic felt very common and i really liked that they tapped into this sort of like something that we can all relate to with our parents especially when our parents are getting older and you're still trying to take care of them but also have your own life yeah and i also thought it was really interesting that there was a moment of hesitancy with ben when he was like is my dad a changeling like he's not allowing to be tested then he sort of berates himself and joseph berates him being like you actually thought i was a changeling are you serious and ben's like well i don't know i mean this is the thing is that war brings out a lot of paranoia in people and it brings out a lot of like suspicions and this is why i really enjoyed it's in far beyond the stars in the beginning joseph is that's the first time he visited the station and i think that sometimes you just need like a parent around to guide you through a tough time i mean cisco is right in the thick of the war. It is horrible. People are dying every day. He had just lost a very close friend who was a captain of one of the ships. Mm -hmm. And he is coming to his dad saying, should I just leave Starfleet? What should I do? I can't win this war. Like, this is not going well. And I think that for the most part, like, the war is really bringing him and his father closer together. But as we see in the episode Images in the Sand, there is also some detriments to what comes out of this war and the visions he gets from the prophets because he's been disconnected with them at the beginning of season seven because of the paw wraiths in the wormhole it's a whole other thing that you we know can't get it's just just normal things yeah just casual the paw wraiths. just the yeah. paw wraiths you know <laughs> don't have time to unpack all of that right now but essentially cisco's feeling cut off from his connection to the prophets and his title the emissary is sort of being tested and so what does he do he goes home and i think that this is a brilliant idea because sometimes we just got to go home to clear your head you got to be around family who doesn't judge you for things who's they aren't your co-workers on your butt about like getting stuff done you know mostly you're just like you get to be home and you get to sleep in till noon and it's work at your father's restaurant it's great and play the piano all day yeah literally all day so i think that cisco is desperate to find out who this person is and this vision that he has from the prophets and lo and behold we find out that this is benjamin cisco's actual mother he has been living a whole life thinking that another woman was his biological mother. And 
you know, I think we've talked about this a little bit, but I think biology only goes so far, blood only goes so far. I think that Ben can still really count who raised him as his mother, you know? I mean, he's still like, this is my mom. But it's gotta be just bizarre and devastating to find out that that's not your biological mother and that she left. And then to find out later that it was a whole ploy from the prophets to make sure that Cisco was born. Like, that to know that your whole life was predestined in that way. Ooh, do you want to unpack that? Because I don't know what to do with that. I think I want to leave it shut in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> leave it in that little um, box that he, <laughs> what's it called? The, uh, the prophet orb, box. Orb yeah. box. <laughs> the orb of the emissary. Yeah, yeah, leave it yeah. in that box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't need to open it. <sighs> so, okay, first of all, when Cisco finds this out, he really has to pry from his dad to ask who this woman is. And also, it's important to his whole life. Mm-hmm. He has to find out who this woman is yeah. and the whole war. So eventually his dad caves and does tell him. I just want to, again, speak to Cisco's ability to compartmentalize information yes (laughs) and then react with a appropriate emotional response in the moment because he finds this out and he takes it just cool as a cucumber (laughs) he's just like he's like but why didn't you tell me he didn't like scream or cry yeah he's just like but dad so first of all i just want to applaud his ability to do that but second of all i don't know if it makes it harder or easier to realize that it was because of the prophets. But it reminds me kind of of Voldemort's mother and Harry Potter gave her future husband love potion and that's how they got married Mm -hmm. and then as soon as she stopped giving him love potion he left her and the baby yeah and it's kind of a similar situation obviously Cisco's not Voldemort Um, (laughs) (laughs) but this poor woman Sarah her body was taken over by the prophets and forced to do it with the dad you know basically forced to conceive a son and who knows they don't even talk about was she lucid during all of this Mm. was she in control of her body maybe she was into it or she was fine with it and changed her mind later maybe she loved him i don't know i have no idea because we don't talk about it yeah um that's so true i think maybe it's easier for cisco to accept because that's a situation that is so out of your control that's literally god saying boom you're born predestined this whole thing i think maybe it's easier for him to take that news that way but maybe not i don't know either way i'm impressed with his ability to prioritize the mission and to prioritize the war over his own personal revelations yeah and i think what really stands out to me too in this two-parter because it's images in the sand and then shadows and symbols in the second part where both joseph and jake cisco are deciding to go with ben on this journey to figure out where the orb of the emissary is and joseph says to him we started this together we'll finish it together and i think that is his way of apologizing and of showing like i've made mistakes in my past i didn't tell you about your true mother but i'm here for you now to go and look for these visions of her and to solve this mystery once and for all and i think that that is a really beautiful way of extending a hand. I mean, he's not, his health isn't great and he's climbing through this crazy hot desert and up these crazy hills. Like they're really doing some big hiking on this journey. But yeah, it's just, it's a lovely way to show that he is standing with him. I totally agree. And he should not be there on the planet. Like in all sense of logic, he should not be there. But Ben knows he can't stop him. 
and Jake sweetly helps him up all the sand slopes. Yep. <laughs> I definitely got Discovery vibes when they were all in their sand outfits. Heck I was yeah. like, oh, where's Michelle Yeoh? Yeah, like, and <laughs> Next Generation with like Picard and Wesley, like they're always trekking in the sand. They love these sand tricks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they should call it sand tricks. Sand tricks. <laughs> I think that's really good. I also like Esri's appearance in this episode. Again, it's really tough because we just lost Jadzia and I'm not ready for a replacement. No. But seeing it out of context and not watching the whole show through, I don't have that burden (laughs) right at this moment when I'm seeing this episode and it's easier for me to accept Esri. And she is, I think, an important part of Ben's life just as much as his father. Absolutely. Because now he's known three iterations of Dax's. Yeah. He's known Curzon and Jadzia and Ezri. And I think it's special that she appeared when he is kind of taking the L and he's just resting and he's choosing to not do anything and wait for the prophets to come to him at home. And then as soon as Ezri comes, it's like the whole family's together. Obviously, you've realized, you know, we just been talking about Ezri Dax and not Jadzia. The reason is because there's really not any family episodes for Jadzia at all. We only know that, I think the most of what we know is in the pilot episode where we see her transition from Curzon to Jadzia with the symbiote. And we get little tiny facts. I'd say if you want to know more about Jadzia, go read Memory Alpha because you're going to learn a lot more. Yeah, I can tell you three things about Jadzia Dax's family. One is one we already mentioned. She has had nine kids, five as a mother, four as a father, and that her parents and sister never underwent symbiosis, and they lead happy and productive lives, and (laughs) that she also makes a goodbye message to her mother every time she goes out on a mission, which also O'Brien makes to his family. I think everyone's out here making goodbye messages. O'Brien says he makes two a year sometimes. Yeah, jeez. Starfleet life is rough out there, folks. You've got (laughs) to really think about it before you join Starfleet. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean... We are so, so thrilled that you stuck in with us with this extremely in-depth take of our first part of our Deep Space Nine family series. I really feel the holes in my heart because we haven't talked about Quark or Odo or any of our Hardly any of our aliens. Any of the Cardassians. Oh, the hole in my heart will be filled next week when our release of our part two episode comes out and we will discuss those characters yeah we can't wait i can't wait to watch 20 plus episodes again (laughs) yeah we're gonna just like dive into the cardassian madness and talk about kira and odo and the of course a million frangy episodes there are so all the tangled weebs we (laughs) wed no 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 perfect let's end it there Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please tune in next week as Ashley and Rihanna discuss the familiar relationships of Odo, the Ferengis, Kira, Golducott, and Garrick in Deep Space Nine. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check out our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. If you would like to become a patron, you can donate any amount per month to have access to our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, Star Trek Trivia, and future reviews of the animated series. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please email us at 
the Dura Sisters Podcast at gmail.com. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith, and our outro, Worst Revenge, was by Aurillo Voltaire. How many profits does it take to change a light bulb? None. That is a corporeal matter. <laughs>